Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nida Tamil. Nida is entering her final year of undergraduate study at Ontario Tech University, studying computer science with a data science specialization. She's acted as a teaching assistant for two programming workshop courses, teaching C++ at the university, which is where I met her. She's also acted as a peer tutor throughout her university career, providing one-on-one -on -one academic support for students. Nida has done internships at IBM, working as a software and back-end developer. She's passionate about machine learning, back-end development, and DevOps. Nida has worked as an undergraduate student research fellow under the supervision of Dr. Jeremy Bradbury. In this capacity, she has worked to study 24 novel machine learning features for binary and multinomial classification of attacks, and to engineer artificial data sets for simulating combined intrusion attacks on CANBUS autonomous vehicles. She's been on the president's list over all of her past three years at Ontario Tech and has achieved numerous honors from her time in high school. In this episode, however, Naya and I will be focusing on some of her research in high school. I hope that Naya's high school research endeavors will inspire any younger students listening to take the first steps towards their first education. I cannot wait to see what this podcast brings, and I'm looking forward to an interesting dialogue. Welcome to the podcast, Naya. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Awesome to, to get to chat with you. Um, we were just talking before we, we went live. This is actually mm -hmm. the first time that we've talked in person. Um, yes. but we, I've had classes where she's been uh, instructing, but we haven't actually had a one-on-one -on -one conversation, which is kind of cool. Um, so why don't we get started a little bit with um, your experience in research? I always like to ask people this. It's a pretty broad question, so go wherever you want mm -hmm. with it. But, uh, um, what what do you like about research? What got you into research? Kind of a really open question there. What's interesting about research? Definitely there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> I think I start liking research just as a concept. When you're young and people ask you, what do you want to do in the future? I just like to imagine myself as someone working in a lab with a white coat, just working my brain, trying to figure out something, discover something, invent something. That sounded cool. How I got into research was in that high school, because for the first time I was introduced to a research club in my high school, which I thought was very cool. I haven't heard any of that sort in the previous schools I've entered. So that I spent two years um, in that club. I was able to become, um, spend a year doing research. Um, I also was able to become the president of, of that club for the duration of two years, which was very amazing. And I guess since then, I've switched gears a bit. Now I'm in computer science, as Ben has introduced, but even now I'm still highly considering the path of research. So I've been doing research in my summer as well. Um, yeah. Right. So you are also saying what I like about research. That's a tricky one. <laughs> there are pros and cons in research. There are times where it's fun. There are also times where it gets really frustrating, but in general, I think it's very fun to, um, for me, I, I like the part where it's, you're very free to explore whatever you want. Of course, it doesn't mean that you can just jump in without any idea whatsoever and just drive recklessly, not that kind of freedom. But with regards to, um, with regards to the topic that you have decided, you're free to explore the depths of that topic. You're almost all the time, I think almost always you'll find that you end up learning something that you don't even know it exists, that you don't even know that you'll end up in, being interested in. So I think that unexpected element was something that really attracts me into research. For sure, that's, 
Yeah, that's, I think about the same kind of thing for me. It's that, it's that I guess, sense of discovery almost, mm-hmm. right? of, of exploring the unknown. And, you know, I, I was saying on my last episode of the podcast, it's actually getting released tonight, I believe, or tomorrow. Depends on how long it takes to upload. Um, but uh, I was talking to, to my last guest about how it's interesting when I finished my paper, mm-hmm. uh, my first paper, it, you know, we were working, you know, pulling like 17 hour nights. Um, some counter days, I guess, right? Same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, night and day kind of, you know, get thrown out the window. Um, and we're, we, we finally get this thing submitted and we're super proud of it. And then once that adrenaline sort of, that rush dies down, we stopped and we said, you know what? This is new, right? This mm-hmm. is like, you can't open a textbook and find this, right? Yes. This is something we found. We were wandering in the dark and we found this, right? Yes. And it's it's such a cool thing, right? It's such a cool thing to like to wrap your head around to some extent. Um, I just find it super neat. So so yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, in terms of um, because obviously this is for undergraduate students or high school students who are interested in research or you know maybe interested in research. Um, what's, uh, what sort of, um, I always like to ask this one too, and I, I think it's, I think it's an interesting question, um, to say the least. So, you know, people will give you a lot of cliche answers as to, yeah. um, what, how do you, how do you become a good researcher? How can I, you know, as an undergraduate student, how can I get into research, right? It's like, oh yeah, you know, go to office hours and, you know, um, study for five hours a day, right? Um, and, you know, you know, talk to your professors about science projects. And yeah, everyone's heard that, right? Um, mm-hmm. What's the most uncliche or non-cliche answer to someone, if someone came up to you and said, hey, what can I do to um, to get into research? What's the, what's the best advice you could give them that just isn't something that they may have, something they may have not heard already? That's a tall order. <laughs> hmm. For someone who wants to get into research, right? They have not, they're still contemplating about it. Okay, what I'm gonna throw is also, is something that is both very cliche, but maybe not cliche as I explain it, which is if you're contemplating whether you want to do it or not, just do it, quote unquote. Well, part of doing that is that I notice when I'm doing research as well, this usually you would have a lot of things on your mind. Should I do research? Should I not do research? Should I do research in this topic with this supervisor? Should I continue on this path or not? Is research even for me? Can I do it well? Can I not do it well? There's a lot of questions around that and usually you end up weighing the pros and cons and you become less confident and then you start doubting yourself and doubting the things that you do. A lot of questions being thrown around. And especially if you just, Wanting to, wanting to start research, that means you haven't done it before, then there's not much to lose, really. It's not like just because you've decided to do research now means you've sold your soul to research and you cannot go back anymore, which um, conversely means that even if you don't sell your soul to research now, you can still do it in the future. But if you're contemplating it now means you have a certain degree of interest in it. So if you have an interest in it and you have... Um, without the pros and cons, then why not make an informed, just do it. So that would be my advice. That's a really good piece of advice. I, it's interesting because every time I, I talk to like 
I guess you're going to be the fifth person who I'd ask that question to in mm-hmm. the past like two weeks. And every person seems to answer it differently. And it's such a neat question to ask because I feel like it's slightly unexpected to most people, but it's also, um, it's a really good question, I think. So something popped into my head and I actually have never asked anyone this question before. So it's kind of neat. Um, how do you know when you're doing research? Mm-hmm. I feel like I have an answer to this question, but but I'd love to hear from you. Uh, when you're when you're conducting research, how do you know when you're done? Uh, how do you know when to say, okay, this is my paper, it's done, right? How do you know that? And how do you force yourself to stop? Ah, <laughs> uh, that is tough, and also different from case to case basis. I think when it comes to research, where you have funding or um, most of the time when you're in, still in the school environment, your research is usually tied to a certain club, a certain program, a certain award. Usually they have a time frame. So in those cases, then the answer is simple. When the time is up, when your four months is up, when your one year is up, you have to submit something, right? You have to have something. So that's where you kind of have to tie the knot. To abstract that when it comes to the essence of what you're doing and figuring out when it's done, I would say personally, you have to reflect on what your hypothesis is. Um, when you start up a research, of course, it's important to have a hypothesis. That hypothesis doesn't have to be set in stone. Doesn't mean once you have a question laid out, you must only answer that and not look elsewhere. But you also shouldn't fall into the trap of constantly looking elsewhere and expanding your hypothesis to the point that you may end up be trying to solve world cancer. So I would say um, um, in an abstract manner to know when you're done or to stop yourself would be to look back at, to look back at, your, at your hypothesis. Are you trying to answer too many things or have you sufficiently answered what you wanted to answer? And maybe then in the future you can answer more questions because the world has infinite things to offer, but just not now. Yeah, that's that's totally true, and it's it's interesting when I was when I was writing my paper, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you can relate to this, but we kind of got to a point where it was like, because um, we were on a time frame, right? We were actually on a um, a, a nine day time frame, which was a mm-hmm. little bit a uh, little bit tight. Very tight. Um, but uh, we 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 ended up getting to this point where we were just like, huh, because you know we're doing data analysis and we're finding these trends, and you know. Uh, writing the paper and we're like, okay, let's keep looking through some data and see if there's anything else maybe we can, you know, say about this, right? And so looking through some data and then it's like, huh, that's a trend. That's a really cool trend, but that's going to take an extra two pages <laughs> to explain. Yes. So let's put that in future areas of research. <laughs> yes. Right? I... Let's just, we ended up just making like, I think it was like, because we had like a, a, a two column paper similar to like what you have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up taking one whole like column length page of um, bullet points just on like, you know, this could be a future area of research, this could be a future area of research, right? And it's just like, yeah, these are all things that we want to do, but we just don't have time, right? Um, I think that's why when it comes to research paper, you always have that future research corner. Partially, it's usually the things that you cannot finish within the deadline, but I would say those corner can also contain the things that you wanted to explore in the future. Yeah, that, that's what I found as well, definitely. Um, and then, like, you know, the, the more that you think about it, the more that it's uh, 
more come to you, right? And you're like, yeah, yes. I want to do that, and I want to do that, right? And then that's that's kind of what's interesting about research is it's almost addictive to some extent, right? Mm, yes. Like you, you complete one project, and now you have 10 others that you have to do next, right? Because, <laughs> yes. you know, you've, you've found 10 interesting things that you want to go down, right? So I don't know. It's, it's kind of cool in that sense, right? I, I it's almost like going down the wiki. Uh, sorry, we're cutting you off. It's almost like going down the wiki hole, uh, wiki rabbit hole. I think people usually say. Exactly. It's, it's, it's exactly like that, and it's, but it's it's your own Wikipedia to some extent, right? Like <laughs> yes. You've made your own Wikipedia, and, and you're doing it to yourself, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of it's kind of neat. That's for sure. Mm. So I feel like I feel like we've kind of covered um, research in general. Uh, decently well. Why don't we move on to talk about your paper? So um, what I tend to do, just so you're aware and so the audience knows, is I always um, will link to the paper that we talk about um, in the description. And I'll also put a link to um, Tanaya to your LinkedIn Mm -hmm. um, so that if anyone has any questions or wants to reach out to you, they've got your contact info. so, so yeah, so we'll do that. So the paper we're talking about, um, it'll be in the, in the uh, link in the description. Um, and so the title of the paper is Manganese Dioxide-Based Supercapacitor. Um, really neat paper. I read it and it's like, it's a cool paper because it touches on some, at least for me, I just took physics two, which is on electromagnetism. And it touches on a lot of those concepts and builds on them. But the, the, I guess the, the lexicon is approachable to like a, a high school student, right? Because it was written by a high school student, yes. right? So it's, it's really neat in that extent that like, you know, I'm reading a research paper that's about electromagnetism, which definitely is not my field of study. Um, and yet I got to the end of it. And I think this is the first paper that I've had an interview, like a, a podcast episode on where I've gotten to the end and I'm like, I understand that paper like fully, right? And not that that's a bad thing, mm-hmm. not that it's, it was, you know, like it, it was just really well written, right? To the extent that I could grasp it as an undergrad student, which is really cool. So definitely recommend that you read it. It's not, the audience reads it. It's not too long. It's, I think, maybe like maybe five to five to 10 pages, somewhere in that range. Even um, less than that. Sorry? Even less than that. It's about three to four pages. Really? Okay. Then it's maybe just three or four pages. Okay. That's good. Um, so yeah, three or four pages. So, so take a read of it. It's definitely a good read. Um, yeah. So why don't we get started a little bit? Um, what got you interested in this? Because I mean, if you think about it, right, as a typical high school student, you're not going to go, Hmm, what's the best material for supercapacitors? Could it be manganese dioxide, right? Odds are most most uh, high school people aren't going to be thinking that. What brought you to this train of thought? Um, you know, is this a passion? Is this a, uh, just something you're interested in? What, like, you know, what, what, what brought you to looking, looking into capacitors? And then I'm assuming what brought you to manganese dioxide would be a follow-up question. Funny that you mentioned that a high school student normally wouldn't just go, oh, manganese dioxide, because at that time, I didn't even know what a supercapacitor is and took about, I think, a month to actually come to terms with what a supercapacitor actually means. So um, what happened then was 
because as you said, we're high school students, so we're still not quite sure what we want to do. So what my club, um, our, the club professors does is they give us a list of topics that we're interested in, say maybe nanoparticles, sustainable energy, um, machine learning maybe if you're interested, things like that. And we just select what topics that we may be interested in and we'll be introduced to a university professor who actually knows what they're doing and we'll be learning from them. So at that time, the topic is very open-ended. We don't have to have or already have a specific idea in mind and say, I want to do this research. So at that time, I thought sustainable energy does sound interesting. And I, I like chemistry. I wanted to do something in the field of chemistry. So I take those boxes and I got introduced to a professor that does research in energy as well as um, capacitors. So I thought, okay, sounds interesting. And that's how I spent one year of my high school in this research. That's pretty awesome. So in terms of the other, um, the co-authors of that paper, mm -hmm. um, were they classmates in, in this in this club, the research club you were talking about? Um, you can say they're classmates. So they are fellow mates in the club as well. Um, we are instructed specifically to form a group of three, understandably to make our work lighter because we're still doing normal high school lives alongside this one year research. So that makes sense. So, so it was more of like a, a sort of structured one year time frame to get this done with a, um, with a, a, a professor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that makes that definitely makes sense. I think that's, um, that's a really cool club. Like, I actually kind of wish that I had something like that in my <laughs> high school. We, I, I don't know if that's just like a, because you went to high school in Singapore, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just like a, like a, I don't know if that's just like Thunder Bay where I live, or if that's just like a, if we don't have that, because I know we don't across the city, right? Um, or if that's like a broader thing that maybe uh, Ontario or Canada doesn't have. Um, I'm not sure, but but uh, I feel like, you know, if there are any students, if your high school doesn't have one, that could be Make a one. interesting thing to start up. Because um, they do exist. And I, until like, until I um, started talking to you about this, um, like what, a few minutes ago, I didn't actually realize that we that that was a thing that existed in high school. So that's kind of cool. Um, but, so yeah, definitely. If you're interested, this would be a good thing to put on a resume. You want volunteer hours in high school? This is a good thing to do. <laughs> um, if it doesn't exist so, in your high school, for those who's listening, I would say make one. I think it's very rare to have a science research club. I was very fortunate to find one. So if it doesn't exist in your school, suggest one, make one, put in your resume. Awesome. Exactly. It's a great thing to put in a resume, especially if you're interested in research, right? Yes. Well, uh, get you pretty far. Um, so, in terms of, um, so, yeah, so we got that. Why don't we touch on what exactly is a supercapacitor? I, of course, <laughs> I read your paper, mm -hmm. but let's let's uh, you know for all those high school students who are still struggling to understand what supercapacitors are. Um, if you want to break that down, that'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. So how I like to describe it was, so imagine battery, everyone knows battery, a lot of our devices are operated by batteries. So battery is a device that can store energy, it can release energy, and you can sometimes recharge it depending on the type of batteries that you have. So supercapacitor is kind of like a step above that. Um, what's superior about supercapacitor is that it can store more energy actually no scratch that it can deliver more energy than a battery so 
um, say, with the same size super capacitor and a battery, so you can power a battery can power a remote control while a super super capacitor maybe can um, power up a car, just as an exaggeration. But what's also the downfall of supercapacitor, the reason why you're not really seeing it around in your devices as opposed to a battery is that um, it's still expensive. And on top of that, it still cannot store a lot of energy. It stores about 10 to 20% of energy that a battery can as of writing that paper. There might be other breakthroughs by now. So that's, in essence, it's a supercapacitor. Super capacitor. Uh, maybe you can think of it as a future of what battery might, might look like. So, in terms of, I, I, I don't know, I mean, people people have obviously seen batteries, mm -hmm. um, I, I would hope. Um, people have, uh, I would imagine if you haven't seen a capacitor, that's just a normal capacitor, it's just like a little little silo-looking thing with <laughs> two sticks at the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, what does a supercapacitor look like? Can you, can you, can we visualize it? Is it similar to what a capacitor would look like, like a standard capacitor? Honestly, throughout that one year research, I have not seen an actual supercapacitor. We are investigating the, an ideal material for the supercapacitor, but we have never actually made one. So to answer you, I have no idea. <laughs> Probably something similar. <laughs> Probably something similar. That's, that's, that's totally fine. So if you're interested in knowing, um, audience, take a Google. Yes, um, Google <laughs> do the research. I don't know if we ended up getting to it. Um, what's uh, what brought you to manganese dioxide as an option for the supercapacitor? So, my the professor that I was working under is part of his um, specialty is looking into this um, chemical components and what can maximize storage of energy and so on. So we look into several possible um, chemical options. But ideally, what we want to move towards is to make supercapacitor something that is more like a battery, right? Something that is more widely used. What's the criteria for that? Well, we want it to be cheap. We want it to be readily available. It's the idea is a sustainable energy. We don't want something that works for 10 years and then you can't have that material anymore because it's gone. But we also want to tackle the one main thing about um, supercapacitor, the reason why it's not widely adopted, which is it cannot even store a lot of energy. So comparing, we compare several elements possible, and we decided that magnesium dioxide is a good element to investigate for a year and try to expand on that, see how we can optimize its performance. And I think that one of the reasons that you at least you illustrated in the paper was mm -hmm. that um, it, it's rather widely available, right? It's yes. not like a, um, I think there was one kind of, uh, um, frankly, and this doesn't happen often, so like I'm saying, this is a really well-written uh, research paper, but it um, doesn't happen often that you, you kind of chuckle when you're reading reading a paper. Um, and it was, you know, uh, however, it, it was this line here, I'll just read it. You were talking about um, uh, ruthenium, di ruthenium dioxide, is that how you mm -hmm. say it? Ruth I, I don't know, I'm not going to this so you wrote, however, high cost, low porosity, and toxic nature nature of RuO2 limit commercialization of supercapacitors using this material. And I kind of laughed, and I was like, "Yeah, that would that would do it." You know? <laughs> yes. I, I'm glad that we don't have those, you know, in uh, uh, in the, the the cupboards, and you know, kids can get their hands on them and that kind of stuff, <laughs> right? 
Um, yeah, so, I mean, I guess it's bad enough if someone, a kid, you know, eats a, a AAA battery as long as it's, you know, not a ruthenium dioxide. That's terrible. So, um, in terms of, uh, so I think that was an interesting one because it, it sort of illustrates how, like, you know, it's, ruthenium dioxide appears to be, you know, more rare, um, or at least higher, uh, more difficult to extract to, you know, to, to get it. Um, and, and when you're looking at it, I, I can't recall, I think you said it was one of the more, I believe you gave a number as to like how abundant it was, but that's, uh, it's in the paper as a specific. Um, so it was a rather abundant material, which definitely helps, right? Mm -hmm. um, and low cost, right? Environmentally friendly, um, totally awesome material. And so that totally makes sense um, as to why you choose that. So then um, let's let's go through this sort of chronologically, like for you, like when mm -hmm. you were doing this research. Um, I, I would imagine that you came up with a hypothesis first. What, what did you think? And, and when I say you, I mean like you individually, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like not just your team, but like when you went into this experiment, you know, you were saying, yeah, uh, you know, the, the professor you're working under said, yeah, let's look into supercapacitors. Maybe we should look into um, manganese dioxide. Um, what, what were your first thoughts that came to mind? Like, what did you think was going to happen? At that time, I would say not, um, my thoughts were a lot of confusion. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. And I have no idea where to take it from there as well. Um, of course, as a high schooler, my approach would be, well, if mangan if we're doing something with the manganese dioxide, then do we then try to put it into a capacitor and then try to tweak the capacitor around? Do we synthesize it differently, things like that? Do we change the con concentration? That ends up being part of it. But then I ask for more literatures to read through for my professor because then I so have an idea of where to go from there. And he introduced me to this concept called absorption. It's like absorption, but change the B to a D. So the difference between that and the typical absorption with a B is that if an absorption with a B is when some a material soaks certain chemical or certain liquid thoroughly, while an absorption with a D, that process only happens on the surface, which I thought is very cool. And if we're going this path, then we have a clear idea if we're going the absorption path where everything happens in the surface, then the goal can be to maximize that surface because the more surface you have, the more chemical reaction can happen, right? So that's where I end up, um, that's what guided me into where this research should go. That makes sense. Um, and then perhaps for you know undergraduates or uh, younger undergrads or um, uh, high school students, What's um like you said you you were saying you were pretty confused you know um was it mainly like like what would you what would you suggest if someone was starting up some research um mm -hmm. and they were were confused you know about topic or confused about um you know they, they got into some stuff that was a little bit over their head that kind of stuff it can happen it's you know we've all tried to Google something and went into Wikipedia and it's just this big mess of, you know, math equations and integrals that, you know, a high school student does not understand. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, so what, what, what would you, um, do you think like 
Now, would that be like a good mentor? Would it be using specific websites, using textbooks? What, what kind of advice would you give? My advice would be definitely, for one, talk to your supervisor. Don't hesitate to talk to your supervisor asking for one, more reading, and two, to clarify said reading. Um, when you go into research, you might have this pressure of, oh, you must already know your thing, that's why you're in this research. No, um, you shouldn't go to research with that mindset. You should go to research with the mindset that you're here to learn. So don't hesitate to ask anything from your supervisor. Make sure you know clearly what you're doing as opposed to, I think I know, and then taking a step in the dark and then ends up speaking, spending the rest of your time not really knowing what you're doing. And I would say the second thing would be, make uh, don't spend too much time on a paper. Well, it's good to have lots of paper to refer to and to be able to understand lots of paper would be very great as well. Research, usually you're on a time constraint. And on top of that, those paper are not the things that don't directly correlate to the things that you'll be doing. It's not that you'll be reproducing those papers. So it's good to take the essence of the papers that your supervisor give you, understand it well, discuss it with your supervisor, what can be taken and so on, but don't um, get into this trap of, you can't understand the paper and then you feel that, oh, I shouldn't do research anymore. <laughs> and then you quit from there. Well, the other thing too, is you, you read a research paper and this was my, my last guest was talking about this. Mm -hmm. you, you read a research paper really differently than you read a, um, a textbook or a novel or anything else, yes. right? Um, you're, like he says, you know, my last guest was talking about how you read, you're going to read it through three times or so, right? Until you can actually like, you know, maybe skim it and then you read it through fully and then you read it again to make over all these connections, right? If, if you're really using something, you really want to like, get a grasp of how that might connect to your work you've got to leave, you've got to read it a few times right mm -hmm. um and then the other thing that like I, I know when i first started this um when i first started reading research papers that kind of was interesting to me was uh, the way that my my supervisor well it wasn't directly a supervisor my mentor i guess if you want to call it um, taught us to read research papers and it was if you want to get the gist of a paper to see if it's good for you read the abstract, the introduction, and the conclusion, yes. right? And then exactly you, know where, well, you know the, you know, with the introduction, you know where we start, with the conclusion, you know where we end, and the abstract kind of tells you a, a brief summary of everything in the middle, right? Yes. And then, it, and that's sort of weird, like, you wouldn't do that in like a, like, you couldn't imagine doing that in a textbook, you know, reads the first paragraph, reads the last paragraph, okay, done, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not what you do, right? Um, so it, it, it's, or, you know, reads the novel, right? Opens up Great Gatsby. Okay, let's read the first page. Let's read the last page. Okay, I understand it all, right? Let's read the back of the book. I got it, right? Um, so it, it's interesting. It's a totally different style of, of thinking, of reading. It's a, it's a really neat skill. I, so, sorry. I think at the beginning, first time I read a research paper, I also felt slight guilt of doing that because we're taught when we do um, when you're in school when you read a textbook you read from the beginning to the end you read from chapters to chapters when you read novel you also read from chapters to chapters but then when you read research paper your advice you're most likely advised by your supervisor to just start from as you said abstract introduction conclusion so I think at the beginning you might feel a bit guilt of doing that but you'll find that 
that is the most efficient way of approaching a research paper. Don't get too bogged down with the methodologies and what exactly they're doing. Get the gist of it. And if you find that you need more information as to what they're doing, then go deeper into the paper and read it three to ten more times. Yeah, that seems about right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know for myself, reading, like, we had one research paper that was um, one research paper. Like, I mean, obviously, all of our research, our, our, our sources were really important, but there was one that, like, really stuck out as incredibly important in terms of, um, you know, in terms of its, its, its applicability. Um, and I think that source I probably read through, like, I mean, it was, it was a long one too. It might've been about a 30 pager and I might've read it like five times or so, six times. And it's, it's, it's weird, but you get a deeper understanding each time, right? You get like this really fundamental understanding. Um, it's kind of cool. So, so then let's, if you're able to take me through, um, what, what did you, like, like what did you do? I guess would probably be a, a question that people would say that this is more of a sort of paper, which is our first um, experimental paper. Um, what what did you do, and how did you? Um, yeah, what did you do? Just just walk me through that. So for that paper, after we have decided that our goal is to try to see to optimize the performance of manganese dioxide in context of a supercapacitor. Then we start trying to figure out what variables to tune, what things to change to make sure that we can do this. Um, previously, uh, we talked about adsorption, right? The one where things happen in the surface. The goal was to maximize the surface. So how can we do that? What do we need to change in order to do that? So then we, um, we investigated and the things that we can change includes the temperature when we synthesize the material, the concentration of the chemicals that you use um, to synthesize it, as well as the type of the chemical in as the part of the entire um, chemical reaction. So uh, I think um, a high, high school student might hear this often. There's a concept of dependent and independent variable. So a lot of the research done was making sure that there's only one thing that we change at a time. So we, and I mentioned temperature, concentration, and type of chemical, right? We don't want to change all three at a time. Keep the others constant to a certain value that is reasonable start changing one of them at a time. So maybe start at the temperature at 100, see what happens. Then try the temperature at 300 Celsius degree, see what happens. Repeat that process several times. For each of the experiment as well, especially for a scientific experiment, uh, scientific research such as this one, make sure that you do your experiments several times as well. Your results for the first experiment may not be the true result. It might be an outlier. It might be that you did something wrong. So you make sure that you do, for each of the temperature, for example, we did about six samples each. So we did that for each of the different independent, um, each of the independent variable that we change. We measure how much, then after that, we put it into an electrode, a makeshift electrode, so that we can measure the performance of the materials that we just created. And then from then on, it's just a number game. We look at the numbers, see which one works best, and before we know it, the one year is up. And that's the gist of the paper. Makes sense. And so um, what did you find when we go there? Um, I think the conclusion was pretty simple. Um, the surf as you increase the surface, we proved that indeed the ability to store the um, and 
the ability to store energy becomes greater. There are certain temperature and certain concentration and certain chemical that works better one than the other. But overall, it's not a very conclusive evidence that therefore that's the best. We're just able to prove that there might be a trend. So I think at that time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the higher temperature, the better it is for, it has better energy storage capacity, something along those lines. So we were able to prove that in the paper, but I think that was the extent of it. Makes sense. And so, um, what's, uh, um, you talk about some, some future areas of research. Now, mm -hmm. if you don't mind me asking, how long ago was this, was this paper written? <laughs> um, I think at least five years ago. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that was that was my my guess. But, <laughs> yes. Uh, so five years ago, um, you've, you've been doing five years of, of computer science. Uh, maybe we can start tying this a little bit into the computer science. Mm -hmm. um, what's uh, what, what would you like? You have some future areas of research. Um, let, let's start there. You have some future areas of research. Have you explored any of those? Um, have you done those? You know, whether through like a computer science first or just generally looked into them. Um, have you taken a look into those future areas? Um, specifically, because the topic has changed significantly at that time, it's more physics slash chemistry, but now it's more computer science. I have not had a chance to delve into that area anymore. So that future research remains a future research. Um, but I guess in terms of my more recent researches, given the time, it's, I think there are lots of opportunities to always expand on your future research component as what you mentioned as well. There's always lots of things that you wanted to do. It's really easy to find yourself slowly expanding your hypothesis until you find that you're trying to answer the cure to world's cancer. <laughs> So yeah, I don't think I haven't, I haven't had much chance. I may want to look into that, but right now I think I've switched gears into computer science, so there may not be much opportunities there. So yeah, so if you were, if you were given, um, mm -hmm. if you were given unlimited time, unlimited money, um, unlimited like support, right? All this <laughs> sort of stuff, um, a completely ideal world, and someone told you, hey, we're going to pay you a million dollars to rewrite this research paper um, or to, to do this research paper, right? Mm -hmm. um, what would you have done differently, I guess, is sort of the question, right? What, what would you do differently um, being yourself now, right? In a computer science background, um, where would you take this, right? Oh, especially given the computer science background. No, that's interesting. At that time, I didn't even consider the possibility of just simulating things. It's, also, it's only a concept I grew familiar with as I go into computer science, or maybe it's a new technology, but nowadays it's easier than ever to simulate what may happen. So during that time in high school, a lot of time was waste, not quite wasted, but a lot of time was really spent on doing each of the experiments. The reaction is not something that finished in say a minute or two. Those reaction takes about three hours, could be more than that for each sample. So that definitely took a huge chunk of the time that we had. But given 
the advancement of technology now and the knowledge that I may have nowadays, I think it'll be very interesting to see how I can use computer science to simulate these experiments. And of course, beyond that, because it's been five years, I, I believe there's definitely a lot more advancement, advancement that has been made in that area. There's definitely values to look into what has been done, as well as if magnesium dioxide is still the best approach. And if there are other, other areas to explore, I think it was mentioned in the papers as well, simple things such as changing the, the structure of the material itself, which we haven't looked into during that paper term. Definitely there's a lot of things to explore if you give me unlimited time and money. So going off that a little bit, mm -hmm. um, you use the terms, and maybe I missed the definition of it, but you use the terms nanoflakes, and then in your future areas you say nanosheets and nano rods. Mm -hmm. What are those? Like why is why is nano in there? And uh, what exactly are, are nano rods, nano sheets, nano flakes? The nano is there because of the size, so 10 to the power of minus 9. The flakes, rods, and sheets are exactly as it says on the name. So when you look at the materials on a microscope, you would actually see the forms as a sheet or a flake. Like You can think of it as a bonito flake, this thing that you find on Japanese food usually. Or uh, what did I miss? There, or a rod. It, look, it looks like a cylinder. cylinder. So it refers to the shape of the material because we're dealing with nanoparticles. Makes sense. That's actually a very logical um, naming convention. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike, you know, most naming conventions. <laughs> um, so, so here's another question. Now, um, I just got, I'm just, because I'm going through your paper page by page, like, you mm -hmm. know, um, I guess that sort of chronologically. Um, references. So I guess this is kind of tying back into our broad research. Um, this is a dual question. How do you know what, like, how do you know what references are good? And how do you know what references to use, to include? It's sort of like a two-part question. Um, like, obviously, you want to include good. Um, good sources, but also you don't want to include every good source, like you were saying, because now we'll have the cure for cancer, right? Yes, that's very tricky. Um, I think the best way to think of this is going back to usually when you do a project in high school, you go to Wikipedia, right? And most professors, uh, teachers there, would tell you do not cite Wikipedia, cite the things that Wikipedia used to cite. It. A lot of I think I find in research you the same thing happens as well. Sometimes you find that a paper may not sufficiently answer your question, then you go to the references of that paper and then you read that and then you cite that instead of the original paper. So as to what is good and what is not, I would say depends highly on what you're doing. I don't think there's a one true measure that says that, oh, this paper is good, this paper is bad. Some people may say that um, if it's published in a prestigious publication, therefore it's good, but we know that that's not the one ultimate measure of goodness. So use your own judgment and don't hesitate to jump from one references to the other that you, like you would normally do on a Wikipedia page. It's interesting um, that you mentioned that because I was actually reading, or I think I was watching a video, I can't recall what it was, reading an article or something like that, um, on a, a group of individuals, of researchers who 
we're just interested. I think they were fed up with the the peer review system and the um, you know the the prestigious journals and all this, right? The bureaucracy, and so they thought, I wonder if we can write the most insane paper that just is completely bollocks, right? Completely untrue, um, and see if it'll get published, right? And it turned out that they just had to use the right vocabulary, do it in the right field, um, and just like, yeah, it, it was really weird. I think they ended up doing something along the lines of like, Hitler was transsexual or something weird like that. And it was just like completely bizarre. And yet somehow they ended up like, I think they made it through the peer review process and it was just being finalized. Mm -hmm. And then they caught on to the fact that hey, this isn't actually a real paper. <laughs> I think when I was doing research, I remember something that my supervisor told me when I was doing the high school research specifically is how you know whether uh, you should use, you should even consider a research paper or not is first look at the number of citations. Like how many times has that paper been used by other papers? Usually that's a good indicator that that paper means that it has some value, which is why it's used by a lot of other publications. But as as you said, if someone were to, in the experiment that you mentioned, if someone were to manipulate that, then I think in the end, ultimately, make sure to read the paper and use your own judgment. <laughs> Don't rely on prestige alone. Yeah, yeah. You want to you wanna really carefully look through some of those papers. The other one that, that always gets me is, and I don't know how often, if you've seen this or how often, but if you're reading through a research paper and mm -hmm. it goes, you know, um, oh, you know, blah, 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 citation one, right? Superscript one, blah, 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 superscript two. And then uh, I'm like, oh, wow, they have a lot of citations. And then you scroll to the bottom and there's a references section. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, wait a second, what are you citing then? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no footnotes, no nothing, just the number one. It's like, hmm, you citing like your, you know, your, your brother, your, you know, <laughs> who are we citing here? <laughs> High yes. school teacher, right? Like, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I've always found that interesting, kind of funny. That's uh, a little tough sometimes, see? Mm. So I feel like we've kind of touched on a lot. Um, why don't we move over to a little bit of, um, I, I'd love to kind of go, because I know we've been focusing on the manganese um, oxide, the dioxide paper. Mm. Um, why don't we transition um, and do like a little bit because we are we have a day close to our time, but um, do a little bit of a you know where to go from there, like in terms of your story, right? Um, what sort of research are you doing now? What kind of stuff are you interested in? Um, what sort of you know research have you done so far? Like what have you done in publications? Have you you know uh, what's been your 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 research journey so far? Mm, so ever since then, I've switched gears into the topic of computer science. Um, so right now I'm still an undergraduate in computer science, can't fully call myself a researcher, may or may not pursue the path of research in the future, depending on what fate tells. In regards to what I've done since then, um, I've done, I spent a couple of summers doing research in the field of computer science. So one that I can tell in brief is, I think it was mentioned by Ben's introduction as well, which is a research in autonomous vehicle, seeing how, right now you might have heard a lot of it in news, um, I, I forgot the name of the company, but there's a lot of companies that are trying to release taxis that are 
completely not driven by anyone else. That's called autonomous vehicle. So there, there's a huge risk associated with that, especially because everyone has access to internet nowadays. What happens if someone suddenly attacks, injects some attacks into that car and hijacks it? Then if you're riding it, then you're, you can end up from going to McDonald's to KFC or something even worse than that, touch wood. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen. So that research was looking into that, seeing if we can detect or predict an attack before it happens. Because the idea is we don't want to see an attack happening and then try to find a cure for it. That's already too late. We want to be able to predict. If We want to see if we can predict if an attack is happening based on the messages that are the components of the car sending and do something about it before the car goes into its KFC, I suppose. So that's something that I've been doing. Um, on a personal level, I haven't fully decided on what topic of computer science to re focus my to research on if I have opportunities to research. That was something that I also think um, a lot of people may experience as well when it comes to research. You may not know exactly what you're doing. You may have a general idea. Maybe, for example, I, I like math. I want to do research in math, but not necessarily what about it. And well, with regards to that, I think it's perfectly fine. <laughs> it's um, going, I think I mentioned this again, but in the end, research is a learning experience. You get to learn the technical side of things, depending on what you end up researching, but it's also a learning experience with regards to yourself, how you approach learning those technical aspects, whether you end up liking something or not, how deep you're willing to investigate something or how much perseverance you have in pursuing something that you realize may not be fruitful. And this is going off tangent, but that reminds me of a component of research that I think a lot of people don't really see or mention, which is what happens if you research something and turns out it leads to nothing. You've just proven that something doesn't work because that kind of thing you don't see on paper. People are not interested in seeing that, oh, it, therefore, um, taking the analogy of making a cake, therefore you shouldn't put rice on a cake because it doesn't taste good. People are not interested in that. So I, um, I think one thing from research that really sticks with me, I really take your question to a different direction, is that that aspect of failure, because I don't think any, with, with regards to research, you only see the publication, the paper, you only see the finished product and what works. You don't really see this struggle in the, at the, at, uh, behind the scene. And I think one good thing about research that really develops you as a person is dealing with this failure behind the scene. Yeah, 100% totally agree. And I think that's part of the, the interesting thing about this podcast is I try to really get to that, right? I try to like get the behind the scenes because often the paper isn't, you know, all that there is, right? Mm. There's often like, um, that's why I say, what's your initial hypothesis? Where do you go from here, right? And I kind of walk through the train of thought process, which I think is super cool for people to see, especially young people um to get to see yeah you know there are failures right um i've, I've had some some uh like in, in i think two conversations ago um i was talking to a, a quantum physicist which obviously is a very difficult field um in terms of uh you know making mistakes that sort of stuff or even coming up with hypotheses and i asked him uh um i asked him like i think my question to him was uh um, 
can you tell me like about a time where you you know you came up with a hypothesis, you developed this this uh, this model or this experiment or whatever, um, and you got to the end and you were like, huh, that's not what I expected, right? <laughs> and yes. he he chuckled and he said, which one should I tell you about? <laughs> and, and so so he you know it was it's interesting, but it, it's that it's that kind of stuff that I love to hear because it's. It kind of tell, it shows people, right, that um, shows our audience that there's really like it, it's okay, it's okay to mess up. Like this guy, this you know, this PhD student messed up, so you can mess up, right? You're an undergrad, go for it, right? Um, you're learning, so so do it. So we're kind of getting to the the wrapping point here in the um, conversation, um, and I asked this to my last guest. Um, and I'm going to ask it to you, and a fair warning, this is a, a very dangerous question for me to ask. So you oh, have no. to be careful. Um, we, we can't get into an argument about this. Um, what is your favorite programming language and why? Ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I think my answer has always been very simple. I like Python. I, a lot of people say, Usually, I think when it comes to favorite programming language, it's the one that you find you go towards that language whenever you want to discover something. So what I find is regardless of if I'm given a task, say, make a program that can, um, I don't know, check the current time in Australia. <laughs> That's a very weird order. But if I given an order something like that, then the first language that I would go to is Python. It doesn't have to be, I know that sometimes people think, oh, it has to be like a modern language or a language that is, you need to weight the pros and cons. Can this language be fast enough? Can this language do a lot of things? Does this language have enough libraries that support X functionality, Y functionality, and so on? But I think my criteria of a favorite programming language is really just something that gets you from point A to point B, something that is your favorite tool, so you, you would use it whenever you have to. Yeah, I would say it's Python. Sort of, like this, sort of like a step between pseudocode and actual code for a lot of things, right? Because, you know, in some situations, you, you're making a thing, like, I don't know, if you're making like a, um, I don't know, something that needs to be, you know, quick or, you know, got to be like um, quick execution in that, you probably might not want to do, or like, you know, quick runtime, you probably might want to avoid Python. Mm. Um, you know, you're doing some like heavy graphics, you probably want to avoid Python, but it's still cool to, like for me at least, if I'm doing something like that, I know in our programming workshop course, a lot of the time what I would do is I would just pull out some, you know, pull out my Python on my, my uh, VS code and go into some Python and just write out the Python script and then think about that and say, okay, that makes sense. Now let's transfer this to C++, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so I think that's where... Out that's where the uh, dangerous part comes in. Just because something is your favorite language doesn't mean you have to use that for every single thing that you do. Exactly. There are, you um, the yes, there are right time and place for things. Just because it's your favorite doesn't mean it's the one that can do everything. So then a follow-up question. Um, and I, you can pick whichever one of these you want to answer, if you want to do both or whatever, it doesn't um, in Python, what is your favorite uh, 
is the terminology packaged by different models? I think of all the terminology is for. Um, sounds like package or, sounds right. Package seems right. Yeah. So what's your favorite package um, or and or uh, what package do you use the most? Because I feel like maybe they're the same, maybe they're different. I don't know. I feel like this is secretly a test of whether I'm a programmer or not. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but I think the one that I find use I use a lot has to be pandas and NumPy. Probably because a lot of the things that I like to do or the things that I end up doing or the things that um, gives me the that leaves the most impression in my mind has tends to do with data science. But those are the most widely used packages when it comes to data science, pandas and numpy. And they are a lot helpful. <laughs> At least what I find um, with regards to say other languages, sometimes I have experience where I have to do a bit of data analysis in other languages. And I find that it's a bit, it's definitely more rigorous to have to do so in say Java as opposed to using this utilities that pandas and numpy is offered. Everything looks very sleek and everything can be done very nicely. So I guess pandas and numpy. Maybe matplotlib on the side. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably about the same. Oddly enough, though, I find it interesting. I've read, so I, I've done like quite a bit of data analysis. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I only learned Python like less than a year ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I wrote my first Hello World in September of last year. So. Mm -hmm. um, same. So Eleven months of Python, but um, I like it's interesting because I actually I've used you know pandas. I've used like sklearn. I've used um, you know. Uh, natural language processing. I've done all these crazy data stuff, um, and, and I, I really haven't used NumPy, um, <laughs> which feels like it should be the one that you would use. You know, um, like it, it would feel like that would be the most basic library to use. It, 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 it's so you know uh, universal. I use, of course, I use pandas because I don't think you can really get away with not using pandas. Yes. Um, but I feel like somewhere down the line, I'm going to be doing some work, and I'm going to be like, hmm. Maybe I should look if there's an easier way to do this, and I'll come across an MPI. Um, <laughs> and I, I know that's going to happen at, at some point. I'm just like, at this point, I'm just you know doing the research um, as quickly as I can, which is using the ways that I know how, which is just raw Python at the end of the day. Not ideal, but it works, right? When it comes to research, it, um, it's really whatever works. Whatever it, whatever it gets you to from point A to point B, unless your research is about optimization, then what you're doing, I would say, is typically what I would do as well. Don't get too tangled up with trying to present things in a neat manner. If it answers your question, do it. <laughs> awesome. Any um, final words, any final points for for um, listeners? Anything you want to say before we, we end? Um, hmm. To those of you listening who actually is still doubting whether you should go research or not, just do it <laughs> to reiterate that. After you make, after you do some research and make an informed decision out of it. On that note, thanks for joining. Um, Thank you to you too. That was a really productive conversation, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, that was really cool. So yeah, thanks everyone for watching. That was um, episode four, I think. I don't remember these things, I just post. Um, and yeah, we'll see you next time, I guess. <laughs>